I've got all 52 pages of my notes here, so we should all, we should all be set. Um, no, I appreciate, uh, thanks for the words, Pastor Kerr, and um, I appreciate also um, the, the focus from the New Testament reading today and the, and the prayer on our uh, uh, being strengthened in our weaknesses as, as someone that's a non-professional coming up here um, to preach and to practice the skills like Pastor Kerr talked about, that I appreciate that especially. I always have a renewed um, appreciation for what Pastor Kerr does and, and all faithful pastors do week in, week out as they do this. Um, and I appreciate the, the session and, and the congregation, all of you here at Redeemer, for uh, allowing me to come in as a, a non-professional. Um, I, I think the important thing is, is what uh, Pastor Kerr said, that even though um, I might have weaknesses and trying to uh, train up and get stronger in those areas, what we're all mutually opening up together here is the Word of God. And so that uh, is not shortchanged by... Uh, anything here, and, and uh, that's what I want to present. So with that in mind, let's turn to Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. Luke 6, 1 to 5. Um, I'll begin reading at verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you. Uh, for Christ, who's the Lord of the Sabbath. We pray that uh, you would help us, that you'd send your spirit as we seek to understand these words, these amazing words, um, and uh, lift up Christ for who he is and what he's done and the hope that he is for all of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So it's a pretty short text, um, but it's, the more I looked at it as I was preparing, I was really struck by how dense it is, how every, there's so much packed into this. Um, I think if we, uh, if this was read by a, a careless or maybe even a, a skeptical kind of observer, they might say, um, this kind of seems pretty mundane. There's a bunch of religious people disputing about some up uptight uh, religious um, regulations, and uh, they're fighting like religious people do and have always done. What's, what's new? Um, but then even to a more, uh, maybe a more generous uh, hearer, and um, someone that wants to understand what's going on here, this might still seem kind of enigmatic, though. There's these Sabbath regulations. There's seems to be some kind of loopholes to these regulations. There's this reference to David and, and this tied to the, the Sabbath. Uh, what, what's all that about? And, um, and all, all of this somehow culminates in this amazing statement by Jesus about who he is as the Son of Man. Uh, but I believe if we take the time to understand Luke, um, and his carefully crafted argument here, we see that this is really a quite explosive uh, text, and it's nothing that's mundane, and it's not just a kind of a random strange story about Jesus. We'll see that this passage is not primarily just about Sabbath regulations, but about who Jesus, the Son of Man, is. He is a greater David. He's Lord of even the Sabbath, and you can put your hope in him. So I'd like to walk through the text first and then cover three main takeaways. Um, what the text tells us about Jesus, 
what the text teaches about how we apply the law and how we are to respond to all these things. So, so let's turn to, to verse 1 where we see the occasion for the whole story here. Um, the disciples of Jesus are walking through the grain field and they're picking and eating grain as they walk. And um, as people familiar with the Old Testament, you might first go to those thoughts of the, the Old Testament laws that said we're not to um, reap around the edges and to gather the gleanings. Um, but that's really more of an allowance for the alien and the, the fatherless and the motherless in society. Um, what the, Jesus and his disciples are doing here is probably more like a custom and a law that you see in Deuteronomy 23, 24 and 25, um, where the Israelites were told that they could go into their neighbor's field and their grain fields, their, uh, their vineyards, and they could pluck and they could uh, eat. As long as they weren't getting out bags and throwing it all in a bag and getting out sickles, they were able to kind of do this type of casual and immediate consumption in the field. So I think that's the backdrop of, of what's happening here. But this point in the law isn't really uh, what brought us to the, the whole dispute to begin with. Um, as Luke pointed out from the outset, all of this occurred on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees took offense uh, at this assumed violation of the Sabbath from the disciples picking and eating grain. So the, ba the basic background of that, um, of course, is the fourth commandment, the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, to honor the Sabbath, which is explicitly uh, 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 stated as, you shall not do any work in Exodus 20. Um, and then more to the point of this uh, idea of harvesting grain, Exodus 34, 21 adds, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. So for the Pharisees, this was an open and shut case. Uh, do no work on the Sabbath, including no harvesting, and this was an obvious violation of that. So they were in the right, Jesus and his disciples are in the wrong. But in this case, uh, Jesus exposes that the certainty of their narrow and this external-only categories of lawfulness was mistaken and based really on a, a deformation of the actual law of God rather than the law of God itself. This open and shut kind of analysis that they had did not consider all that the scriptures teach about remembering the Sabbath. And we'll get into more of those details uh, a little bit later. But looking at verse 3 and 4, Jesus immediately goes to the Old Testament in his response to them, pointing to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 6, which we'll read here since this features uh, heavily into Jesus' argument. But as an aside, before we do that, it, I think Jesus' method is worth noticing as well. Um, where do we find our basis of moral reasoning? Jesus is uh, under attack for being immoral, for, for doing what's wrong. Um, and what does he do? Well, what do we do? Are we to uh, just uh, introspect? Are we to follow our heart? Are we to, to look at uh, the culture around us and get our cues from the culture around us? Um, you know, for those, I, I think, uh, that, um, that are of the older, even, so I'm 43, I think even people of my age have seen a vast change in the culture around us and, and just my age. I, I think of people that are in their 80s or older, it, and it's unrecognizable, probably, in the, mor in the moral standards. So we know that this type of thing, to say, what is everyone around us doing? Is that an approach to figuring out what's right and wrong? No. And here we see Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do? He goes to the scriptures. Um, and so as we seek to follow him, that ought, ought to be 
our method as well when we're challenged on what's right and wrong. So Jesus goes to 1 Samuel 21. Um, let's read that now so we have the, the, the context for this part of the passage. So I'll read six verses here. Then, then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. So here we see that David and his men are famished, uh, and they eat this holy bread, which was meant for the priests alone. Uh, Leviticus 24.9 talks more about that, how that holy bread is to be treated and not treated. Um, we see there's a lot of parallels here to this passage. Uh, some of them jump out. Some of them are, are less clear. Um, Jesus goes to an example of kind of an except, exceptional type of, of case, an exceptional legal case, um, where all the standard requirements of the law are not followed in some sense for, for a good or necessary reason. Jesus also chooses an example not only dealing with hunger, but of satisfaction of that hunger with bread, and I think we see how that corresponds to the, uh, to the disciples of Jesus eating the grain. Um, and it's likely that in the first Samuel passage too, I don't know if we know 100%, but likely that this was on the Sabbath. Um, some of the things there, David seems to refer to the specialness of the day, and then also the changing out of the bread would have typically been done on the Sabbath as well. Um, the clearest or the most important of these parallels is the parallel with David, though, this, um, this parallel between David and Jesus. This is indicated by, you know, the very choosing of this case of, of, of David. And you see in the parallel accounts, which we'll talk a little bit uh, about more in a second, with Matthew and Mark. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all um, uh, cover this story and they all anchor this in this Old Testament um, precedent with David. And so... That's obviously key to the message that Jesus is, is uh, trying to communicate here. So in Luke's account, um, the culminating statement is just this bold and bare statement about who and what the Son of Man is. Jesus uses his favorite self-referential -re uh, title, the Son of Man, and I'll talk more uh, below about the, the uh, Son of Man and this title and what are all the implications of that. But for now... Um, I just want to simply note that Jesus' main claim following this Old Testament reference is this statement about himself. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so with that quick kind of overview of the text, I wanted to, to cover three main points. First, what does the text teach us about Jesus? Um, what does the text teach us about what's lawful and um, how we're to understand what's lawful and what's not lawful. And then what does this passage, um, what are we to take as our response to this passage? What does it mean for us today? 
Um, so in the passage, we see disciples, we see antagonistic Pharisees, we see Sabbath regulations, Old Testament references, and it can be a little disoriented, like I said in the intro, but um, all of this is really meant to point out in clear relief who Jesus is. This is the foundational point of the passage. Uh, the reference to David gets, gets that point rolling. Um, already in Luke's gospel, which we've kind of just parachuted into Luke chapter 6 here, but if you're reading the sustained case of Luke, already he's mentioned um, uh, David and this tie of Jesus to David three or four times, talking about Jesus' lineage, which goes back to David, also uh, making this connection of Jesus and David, uh, that Jesus is the son of David. Um, we know later in uh, Luke, he, uh, Jesus refers to uh, the quintessential psalm about David's son, that, uh, that David's son is also his Lord, and Jesus has the clear implication that Jesus is that son of David. And, you know, this is such a pervasive theme in Luke and in the Gospels in general that we probably all, I don't think I've, uh, you know, uh, brought a new thing that you didn't know before, but this is so important to what the passage is here. I think it's worth examining what, what exactly does this um, tie to David mean, particularly in this passage. Um, why is it so important? Well, David's among the most exalted figures in the Old Testament, and his descendant is promised an eternal rule. He calls this son of his Lord and looks to a day when all enemies of the kingdom will be under his feet. David is God's anointed. For us uh, modern democratic Republicans, um, we miss the significance of that fact. We don't do too much anointing these days. Although, if you remember, now this is across the pond from our democratic republic um, to a monarchy. If you saw the uh, coronation ceremony back in May of this year, you might remember that one of the, the culminating points in that whole um, ceremony was an anointing. Um, this, was, uh, this was seen to be the most special and sacred portion of the whole ceremony um, because it's supposed to be a private moment between king and God. And if you, don't, if you didn't see it or if you don't remember, you'd have reason because they actually screened off that whole part of the ceremony because of the, the um, understanding of how significant that anointing was and how sacred it was. Um, and then I, I think we're also a, a bit at poverty today as Americans because we're known for our pragmatism. What is the cash value of everything? Everything's. Things like anointings and ceremonial types of things um, lose their, their uh, importance uh, on us. But if you look to the Old Testament, that's certainly not the case. Think of how David refused to reach out his hand to the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord's anointed at that time, Saul wickedly pursued David. Um, David even struck down one who did not respect this anointing, even though that man's lack of respect to the anointed served David. Um, the Psalms have a lot to say about the anointing of God as well. Psalm 2 speaks of God's anointed in the highest terms. His inheritance is the whole earth and all the nations. Psalm 89 also talks about God's anointed as king of kings, whose rule has preeminent power and significance and longevity. So then Jesus' use of the David example is not just any example that might fit. He's not merely saying, okay, here's a case where there was some hungry, 
uh, people in the Old Testament, and this hunger was a good enough reason to break the law, and therefore the disciples are vindicated. That's, that's not what he's doing. In fact, some commentators on the passage have noted the fact that um, Jesus' disciples, they weren't really in a situation of great need, which seemed to be a, more of the case in, in the Old Testament example. And so the primary parallel back to the, the Old Testament passage with David is probably something other than this, this great uh, human need. No, the, the case of David was a special case. He's the Lord's anointed, and as such, he has certain authorities in Israel and on the earth. He had the authority received from God and in subservience to God to do what he did without drawing the priestly or the prophetic condemnation. And even here, Jesus doesn't condemn David for, for what he did. He uses him as a quintessential example. Um, so Jesus' reference uh, to this example is most importantly an appeal to the person and position of David rather than merely an appeal of the need of the situation that we see there. So with that in mind, we should examine how exactly Jesus harnesses this appeal. The point of Jesus and of Luke the evangelist is not merely to vindicate his disciples against the Pharisees' claim, but to argue for the unique status of Jesus, God's anointed, and that we can have hope in him. The most critical point of the passage is the, the step from verse 4 to verse 5. Look again at that. Jesus refers back to this Old Testament example of David and his men profaning the holy bread. And then the immediate statement is Jesus' claim about himself and his lordship over the Sabbath. Um, to, to better get a sense of what Luke is, is doing here, I think it's good to compare it with those synoptic, the other gospels, Matthew and Mark, um, with, with their handling of the text. Like I mentioned, they all cover this. But Matthew and Mark both have several additions that are, that are notable to help you understand more of what, what Luke is saying, I think. Um, if you look at Matthew 12, 1 to 8, the same story is covered there. Um, but after Jesus has this reference to David, there's another Old Testament example um, of Sabbath profaning that he gives there. He gives the example of the priests ministering to, uh, in the temple on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, one greater than the temple is here. So here we have the priests doing their uh, typical duties on the Sabbath, and there's a profaning there. He also cites the scripture's prioritization of mercy over sacrifice. And then he gets to this conclusion about the Son of Man based on these things. And then in Mark's account, which is in Mark 2, 23 to 28, uh, Jesus gives the David example, and then he describes uh, the Sabbath as made for man rather than man for the Sabbath. And then because Jesus is this son of man, he's Lord of even the Sabbath. Luke's account is the simplest of all the th three accounts. It's shorter than both Matthew and Mark's account because it adds nothing to this reference uh, in the Old Testament to David. Um, The simplicity of Luke's account makes the parallel bet between David uh, and Jesus more stark, though. In Matthew, the lawful allowance for exceptional cases and the demands of mercy feature strongly in Jesus' response. In Mark, the purpose of the Sabbath, as for man, adds uh, to the basis of Jesus as the exalted son of man and that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. But in our passage, none of that's added. We merely have the statements about what David did and then the claim 
about who Jesus is. The person and position of David stand alone as a historical precedent here. But he's just a shadow of the true anointed one. That's a big part of the point. Uh, David was the anointed one of God, and the priest served him and his holy men food. This was a, a special case for a special figure. But how much more then should uh, the Son of Man and his disciples um, be, be seen in the same light when they're walking through the fruited fields of earth? Um, Jesus doesn't just stop with this implied uh, lesser to greater kind of argument, though. He makes supporting claims about who he is as this greater David. He is the Son of Man. Now, if only isolated to this verse, this language of son of man might appear to be just a little more than Jesus' way of calling himself uh, a man, speaking himself as a man. And, of course, it is that, but it's much more than that. In Luke alone, Jesus describes the son of man in both amazingly glorious terms and in terms of suffering um, regarding the, the, the latter just in Luke, you see that uh, Jesus describes the Son of Man as hated and slandered and betrayed and abused without a home, and then ultimately the Son of Man is killed. But he's also authorized to forgive sins. He says the Son of Man is coming as judge, coming in a cloud with power and glory, and to be seated at the right hand of God. So these are profound statements about the Son of Man, and, and these wide-ranging depictions indicate a depth of sig significance more than just this mundane um, idea that he is saying he's a man. Uh, this fits the role of, of the second Adam, the fact that Jesus is both this lowly one as the Son of Man and also this exalted one. Um, and that connects also to him as the quintessential man, as the second Adam. He's meant to fulfill and obey all that Adam was meant to do. As the second Adam, Jesus was to be obedient to God's covenant, to live the life before God that uh, was required. He was to live as we're supposed to live, humble and obedient before God. We see the vicarious aspect that uh, was so important to Jesus' role as well, and this humble second Adam role, um, he was also to suffer and die in our nature, taking the curse that we deserve upon ourselves. But as the second Adam, as the head of God's redemptive plan, he's also in that exalted and, and kingly role. Jesus intended with this message to identify with the divine figure of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And there we, re we read of this son of man who was exalted uh, to the very presence of the Ancient of Days, and he's given this kingdom and this dominion that's everlasting. And so both of these ideas, that, uh, that Jesus, the second Adam, is humble and that he's exalted, are implied in this passage. The Sabbath is for man, and that's a somewhat mundane kind of statement, that something that's even applied to us. But Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, which is anything but mundane. What does that mean to, to, for Jesus to speak him, of himself as Lord of the Sabbath? Um, he puts himself in authoritative position over the Sabbath. That word kurios is the word used there. It indicates one who is in charge by virtue of possession. Daryl Bach, a New Testament commentator, says that Jesus fills and surpasses the kingly role of David with authority, quote, to evaluate and interpret tradition and law. 
The glory of this authority is underscore, underscored in the foundational aspect and nature of the Sabbath. This is one of the few um, uh, ordinances that was there at creation that persists down to this day. Uh, this is uh, so significant that it's one of the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath is so important that throughout the Old Testament, we see God's condemnation for those who would disregard and dishonor the Sabbath. Um, so this is a high claim. You know, you could see those uh, around that observe this saying, what is with this guy? Does is, is he think he's greater than Abraham or something? Um, for Jesus to be curious of this fundamental of an institution uh, as the son of man, the son of David and king, is for him to be raised to the highest of levels. Um, now, if one were tempted to see this as just an empty claim, hey, anyone can say, I'm the, the son of man and I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I think there's a good parallel to how Jesus uh, handles this and how Luke is presenting it. Um, with what we just saw in, in uh, Luke chapter 5, if you recall, that was an example where Jesus said that the Son of Man had authority to forgive sins, and then everyone questioned him. And his proof of that was that he uh, raised this man up in this miraculous healing, saying, yes, I do have this authority. Um, here, right after Jesus claims this high um, uh, place of authority that he has as this Lord of the Sabbath, as the Son of Man, um, it's immediately followed right after our passage with Jesus going and healing on the Sabbath, healing a man with a withered hand. So with that, I would say Jesus' inestimably high position as the Son of Man, who is Lord of even the Sabbath, stands confirmed. Okay, so I do think, even though I would say that is the fundamental thing we have to get to this passage, uh, from this passage, who is Jesus, the Son of Man? There's a lot said here about um, uh, lawfulness and how we know what is lawful. So point two, we're going to talk about that a bit. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are accused of lawlessness, and he responds by defending their actions. But uh, how does he defend them? Does he defend them by saying the Sabbath laws are passe? Um, you know, or should our conclusion be that we don't care about all those pesky laws anymore? Um, that, no, that would be a hasty conclusion. I would say, though, even, you know, I think us Reformed Christians and, and conservative Christians who take the Bible seriously, uh, we often take a modified form of that, though, when we read passages like this. If pressed, we know that the moral laws persist in some sense, uh, and we like certain laws, of, of course, too. Don't steal, particularly my stuff, and... <laughs> Don't covet uh, or uh, commit adultery, particularly with my spouse. Uh, don't kill. You know, we generally think that makes sense. But uh, even though all people know that, that transcendent and moral laws are inescapable and above us, we tend to, to think of ourselves um, free to dismiss the Old Testament laws when it seems convenient. And we even self-servingly use passages uh, like this one to justify this kind of thing. But no, that, that would be doing injustice to this passage. Um, but let's look exactly, um, what, what exactly is Jesus implying here about the law? Well, a critical question is whether Jesus is teaching here, whether he supports breaking merely the Pharisees' tradition surrounding the law or the law itself. Um, 
Daryl Bach, who I, I normally agree with and I quoted favorably just, uh, just a second ago, he supports more of the, the latter. He says that Jesus takes the issue beyond tradition with the illustration, however, is clear when the explicit point is made that what David did was not lawful. Jesus is talking about more than the Pharisaic tradition here. Uh, Bach's title of his commentary on this section is, The need, Needs of David and His Men Come Above the Law. Um, this understanding of Jesus, or this understanding of Jesus' teaching seems to be that the law must be followed, except in cases of great need. Um, but I want to draw, uh, maybe it's just a, a nuanced um, uh, difference with what Bach, and, and I think he probably represents a, a fair number of, of views on this, but I think it, it misses how we ought to understand the law and, and what is lawful, and it neglects the Bible's complexity about how we understand uh, lawfulness, which kind of is on full display in this passage. Um, Jesus' explanation in the parallel passage in Matthew 12, 5 also brings up the priest's regular work, like I talked about. Uh, it describes this temple work as profaning the Sabbath and remaining guiltless. That's in the law. So um, within the law itself, a profaning of the Sabbath is directed. Um, and so I would say this expands what the biblical understanding of lawfulness uh, ought to be. Here we see essentially a law-directed profaning of the law by the priest, and I think that corresponds to the unlawful eating of David and his men. So this indicates that the needs of David the anointed and his men should not be pitted against the law. Rather, the law to honor the Sabbath, when considered with all the scripture reveals, entails situations like what David, the anointed, and his men did. So Jesus' example here commends a certain approach to understanding what is lawful. That approach is not that the Old, Old Testament is outdated, and now what's lawful is whatever we determine to be merciful and non-judgmental. Uh, the approach is to understand the law within the rich context of the whole Bible. In the Bible, we see layers of example and context uh, that bring depth and, uh, and riches into how we're to apply the law. But we see here that our approach is not to turn away from the Bible. Jesus didn't say, okay, uh, you know, we had this law about the Sabbath, now let's, let's kind of pivot to something else. Um, no, he's going to the Bible, so that's what I'm advocating here. Um, let me take an example to, to help clarify the point. Um, take the Sabbath, which is the, the passage in front of us. Some of the biblically informed additional depth that help us understand what is lawful for the Sabbath include the care of human and animal necessity, uh, priestly and ministerial actions, and the authority of God's anointed, the judge, in these matters, like we're reading here in our passage. We also learn from Jesus' example, examples that um, healing and associated works are particularly appropriate works to be done on the Sabbath. And from Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 7, we understand that uh, a default kind of posture of mercy rather than this gotcha type of approach that we see with the Pharisees is really important for judging in these complex mat matters. Again, this is not an excuse for lawlessness, but an argument for a fuller-orbed understanding of lawfulness. Why is this important? Um, I would say primarily because we should not be pitting Jesus against the law. 
Uh, because Jesus often rejected the Pharisees' misuse of the law, we, uh, uh, because he uh, talked about this misuse of the law, we can sometimes take this to mean that Jesus was throwing away the law altogether. But we know that's not what he was doing. He, he addresses that question specifically in Matthew 5, 18 to 20, and Jesus here upholds all of the law explicitly. Even here, the whole basis of Jesus' argument, as I said, it's grounded in the Old Testament, and it's to point us to the Bible, um, where the law required more than an external and context-free application. So in summary of this, this point two, of how we're to understand what is lawful, it would be wrong to take this passage to mean that Jesus is overthrowing the Ten Commandments and teaching that we don't need to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's right to follow Jesus' example of understanding everything the Bible teaches with respect to the moral law and to form our moral standards based on this whole Bible kind of approach. So we should see here both a caution in rejecting the law whole cloth and in applying it in a self-serving and faithless way. Okay, and lastly, point three, final point. We, we see the demands of the law. Um, we see a healthy way to approach the law, that is faithfully submitting before God as providing the law for our own good. Uh, we see a deadly way of approaching the law, this self-justification and externalistic kind of approach of the Pharisees. But looming over all of this in this passage stands the figure of the Son of Man as the Lord of the Sabbath. The purpose of this passage, like the purpose of the book of Luke, is to present Jesus as the only hope for mankind lost in our lawlessness and our lawfulness. Remember that this passage fits, as I mentioned before, it fits into this, this sustained case that's presented by, by Luke. He begins his gospel, he's writing to Theophilus, um, who's receiving the, the original recipient of this um, gospel. And he's giving an orderly account of what the eyewitnesses uh, uh, saw so that, they may so that Theophilus may have certainty of what he has been taught. And then he ends this gospel that he's written to Theophilus and to all of us uh, after Theophilus with Jesus' words that the law and the prophets and the Psalms were written about him and that they indicated that he must suffer and die and rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in him. So this passage fits within that context. This is one of the key arguments in this sustained case of that conclusion he gets to at the end of Luke. Jesus, the greater David, the son of man, the Lord of the Sabbath, gives us hope that is certain. As both the humiliated and the exalted son of man, he alone can answer our most fundamental needs. The needs for forgiveness of offenses against God, and the need of rescue from our certain death. So if we see here only a question of moral reasoning, we miss the entire point, uh, the one that we really need to catch most. We stand just like those disciples of Jesus accused. It's fascinating the frequency I was, I was looking as I was preparing for this at, at accusation, and it's fascinating to see um, how much throughout the Gospels that idea of accusation comes up. It seems like nearly every chapter, Jesus is either um, directly accused or he's addressing accusations in, in some way. 
Um, if you add to that what we know about Satan's activity, um, it, it's interesting. Think of Job 1, where Satan comes before God, and he's there to accuse righteous Job. We see in Revelation 12, Satan is described as the accuser of the brethren, who accuses the saints before God day and night. So I think we ought to ask, in, in light of all that, where we see this consistent approach, why is there's such a persistent line of attack in, in, in this regard by our, our enemy? Um, I think the simple answer is because we stand open to this kind of accusation. Our response to this passage should not be to dismiss it as the wranglings of an outdated religious order. If that's our response, we are certainly left in our lost state to fend for ourselves against the all-too-true accusations of our lawlessness and guilt before God. You see, even if you could avoid the trap of the Pharisees and have a more gracious and biblical approach to the law, you have no hope in that law. Fallen humans not only trip over the law and reconstructing it according to our own understanding, but also by attempting to use it illicitly to justify ourselves. And, uh, and this is a warning that we need to have repeatedly, even as redeemed believers. The law was never intended to show us the way to justify ourselves before God. The law not only uh, shows us what God requires of us, but as sinners, it shows us our complete inability to please God on our own. It's sad that for, for non-Christians, I'm basing this on anecdotal things I've heard often from either non-Christians directly or Christians who used to be non-Christians and why they don't really want to come to church. And one of the things you'll hear most frequently is because, well, I'm not really holy enough to, to, to be there. That's for all the holy people, and I wouldn't fit in in that sense. I'm not up to those standards. Um, and I think that's really sad because fundamentally we see that the first step for any Christian is an acknowledgement that we are wholly inadequate to stand before God uh, on the basis of our righteous deeds and law-keeping. It's a, it's a prerequisite of the whole Christian faith that we fail the, uh, the holiness test and that we acknowledge ourselves as failing that, that holiness test. We acknowledge that we lack holiness. So whether you are a lifelong Christian or someone that's here today on the fence about all this Christianity stuff, this passage brings you face-to-face -face with both your need and your hope. There's no hope for you to have any standing before a thrice holy God because you measure up, whether through your attempts to keep the biblical law or much less through your attempts to rationalize your misdeeds and construct some kind of morally sufficient view of yourself. In contrast to all of that, Luke lifts our eyes from ourselves and up to Christ. Here we see the Son of Man, the one who is high and lifted up, but who also was lowly, the one who suffered to save lost ones like us who are open to the charge of lawlessness. The call of all of us this morning is to forsake ourselves and to cling to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this view of the Son of Man, this view of our own openness to accusation. We repent of our lawlessness and our 
uh, lawfulness that we assume means anything before you. We thank you for the hope that is alone found in this Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath, who is Lord of all creation. We give him glory and honor, and we uh, pray all this in his name. Amen.